And now if you will remain standing for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 1. Our verses come from verse 5b or the second half of verse 5 as well as verse 6. No, we're uh, moving rather slowly at this moment as we're trying to cover some of the major themes that we will see throughout the book of Revelation. And as we start moving faster through the book or looking more uh, at larger passages, uh, having moved slower here at the beginning will, will be of benefit to us. And so, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 5b, hear, O people of God, the word of the Lord. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and you may be seated. The Apostle John records the book of Revelation to reveal to us what cannot be seen with our physical eyes, but can only be seen with the eyes of faith. That's what the, that's what the word apocalypse means. It means a revelation, an unveiling of things that are typically concealed or hidden. And so he's revealing to us the heavenly reality of the present rule and reign of Christ. Last week we learned from the benediction that Christ is the ruler of the kings on earth. In other words, he is the king of kings. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is presently reigning over all things and has begun to make all of his enemies a footstool. And that accomplishment will be, a, will be consummated when he returns. And so one of the major motifs, really, of the book of Revelation is the kingdom of Christ. And what that kingdom will be like in between the first and the second coming and what it will be like after he returns. Now, Christ's kingdom presently is on earth. On earth, that kingdom is the church. Therefore, it has an outward visibility to it. And hence, we sometimes speak uh, in theological terms of the visibility of the church. Nevertheless, Christ's kingdom is not of this earth or of this world. It is in the world, but not of the world. And that's why oftentimes the, the, the kingdoms of this world do not recognize it as a kingdom at all, because it's a kingdom of a different kind. It's a spiritual and a heavenly kingdom, and not an earthly, geopolitical kingdom confined to any particular nation or nations on this earth. And the book of Revelation reveals to us the nature and mission of Christ's kingdom in the here and now, as well as in the hereafter. 
Now, we've been drawing out the major themes in the book of Revelation, which we will continue to do this morning. And the themes that we will look at in these brief verses, or in this verse and a half, really, revolve around and relate to the overarching kingdom motif. This morning, the recurring themes that we'll find throughout the book of Revelation that we're going to narrow down and focus on this morning will be the theme of the Exodus, more specifically a second Exodus. Also, the conformity to Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ. And lastly, the theme of doxology, meaning worship. Now, each of these major themes of the book will all be recurring throughout the book, of course, and they all relate to the kingdom of Christ. We might look first at the theme of the Old Testament exodus, which the book of Revelation uses as a paradigm or as a pattern for the redemption accomplished by Christ and for the life of the church throughout this age. Now, the exodus is used really throughout Scripture to refer to the pattern of redemption that would be accomplished by Christ. The prophets of the Old Testament often referred to a second exodus that would occur for the people of God. And the New Testament confirms that this new and true exodus has already begun in Christ. And so the exodus from Egypt was merely a type that foreshadowed the true exodus that would take place in Christ. Now how? How does it foresignify? How does the exodus foresignify the redemption accomplished by Christ? Well, think about what occurred at the exodus. Yahweh, the Lord, brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery, Exodus 20, verse 2 says. And this redemption was accomplished by the blood of the Passover lamb that the Israelites sacrificed that night of the Passover. And so the Israelites looked by faith to the blood of the lamb to redeem them from the house of slavery in Egypt. Now, that was the type. The fulfillment in reality comes in Jesus Christ, who is the true Passover lamb, whose blood has redeemed us or has freed us from slavery. Not the house of slavery in Egypt, ruled by Pharaoh, but from the house of sin, ruled by Satan. And that is why the Apostle John begins our passage by saying, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You see, we are called to look by faith to the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, to free us from our sins, to free us from the house of slavery. Now, to be freed from something contains both negative and positive aspects to it. Now, by by positive and negative, I do not mean good 
and bad, or pros and cons. What I mean by positives and negatives is something that is added to, there's the positive, and something removed, there's the negative. Well, so what is removed, you see, is our sins. Our sins are removed. Therefore, the power and dominion of sin has been removed from over us. That's the negative, what has been removed. But the positive, that is what has been added, is that we have now been made into, verse 6, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. That's what's been added to us. We have a new role to fulfill. We've become something new. Something's been added to us. Namely, that we have become a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now this too is an illusion to, not an illusion, but an allusion to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. In the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verse 6, the Lord had at that point brought Israel out of Egypt and to Mount Sinai. And he said to them, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And so again, we have an allusion to the Exodus revealing the Exodus of the Old Testament as a paradigm or a pattern that would be fulfilled by Christ. I might put it this way. Israel's redemption in the Old Testament was confined to their freedom from Egypt. That was the type. The fulfillment of that, the redemption accomplished by Christ, occurred on a cosmic scale. It wasn't confined to Egypt, but it occurred on a cosmic scale. Christ did not redeem from the house of slavery in Egypt, but from the realm of sin and Satan, the cosmic house of slavery. You see, the Old Testament redemption of Israel was the type, the pattern. Whereas the New Testament redemption accomplished by Christ is the reality. The fulfillment of what was patterned in the old. That cosmic redemption is what is being revealed throughout the book of Revelation. And that is why Revelation continues to allude to the Exodus throughout uh, different portions of the book. For example, it is why the plagues in chapter 15, Revelation chapter 15, are like the plagues you find in the book of Exodus. And why also there in Revelation chapter 15, those who have overcome the beast sing the song of Moses which you find in Exodus 15. We read a portion of it in our call to worship this morning. The Song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15. It's why also in Revelation chapter 12, the church flees to the wilderness after Christ's death and resurrection. That is, after he accomplished our redemption, the church goes into the wilderness. That's what that vision Tells us. Now, if we think about that, you see, after the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in Egypt, 
To where did Israel flee? She fled to the wilderness. And she wandered there until she entered into the promised land of Canaan. Which was a type and a shadow of the new creation. The book of Revelation, of course, tells us that when Christ returns, we will dwell with him forever in the new creation, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And so you can see how Israel's redemption from Egypt, and particularly the Exodus, is a major theme throughout the book of Revelation. Christ, the Passover lamb, accomplished our redemption. We are now wandering in the wilderness of this world and will someday enter into the promised land of Canaan. You see, the New Testament using the old as a pattern that is being fulfilled today through Christ and his accomplishment. And so that's one major theme throughout the book of Revelation. And related to all of this is the theme, is another theme regarding the conformity to Christ, our being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, the New Testament scriptures are repeat with the believer's conformity to their Savior, Jesus Christ. In our text, it says that we have been made a kingdom and priests, To his God and Father. That is to Christ's God and Father. Just as Christ is a king and a priest. So we too will reign with him as kings and as priests in the kingdom. In other words, we are being conformed to his image. However, and this is important to get. We are not being conformed to his image apart from suffering. the, The pattern of our conformity to Christ is the same pattern that Christ himself experienced. The pattern is suffering unto glory. Christ first lived a life of suffering. Or we might say a life of humiliation. Which resulted in his glorification, or we might say his exaltation. Now, remember last week when we discussed our spiritual warfare against the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the harlot Babylon. We discussed how the dragon uses the beast to persecute God's people. The false prophet uses deceit, attempting to get all people to worship the beast through that deception. And the harlot Babylon seduces people to join in her debauchery. What's in these ways that the church endures suffering. Christ himself suffered in these very ways. Think about Christ's temptation in the wilderness by the devil. Who deceptively tempted Jesus to bow down and to worship him. And who attempted to seduce him into such blasphemy. In the third and final temptation... 
He took Jesus up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world. And in Matthew chapter 4, he told him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, what is the temptation here? The temptation was to forego the suffering that lied ahead of him. And the seduction was that he would give him all the glory of the kingdoms of the world now. Forgo the suffering, receive the glory now. That was the suffering. That was the temptation. That was the seduction offered by Satan. Well, Jesus, as you know, did not succumb to the devil's temptations and rather chose the life of suffering. In fact, Luke tells us that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus, of course, underwent suffering and temptation all throughout his ministry. But when was that opportune time that Luke was referring to for the devil to tempt him? Ultimately, it was the cross where his suffering and temptation were the greatest. What scripture is telling us is that Jesus underwent his own wilderness experience. He went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this was really indicating that his whole ministry was a life of suffering out in the wilderness. It was a time of suffering. And wouldn't you know it, but scripture also tells us that he experienced his own exodus from the suffering. Get this, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Christ, as you know, his appearance was transfigured, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and Luke 9, 31 tells us that they, Moses and Elijah, spoke of his exodus. And the Greek, it's the word exodon. The ESV, unfortunately, Translates it his departure, which is fine. It it is a departure. Uh, They were ultimately, though, speaking of his exodus, his ascension into heaven. I think it would have been better translated than his exodus because that's what it's referring to. And so Jesus underwent suffering first, but at his exodus, he was exalted, glorified. And so we as a church are being conformed to the image of Christ by suffering first and then glorification second. The whole letter of Revelation is about the church's suffering through persecution, deception, and seduction. Again, Revelation chapter 12 is is a rather key chapter throughout the book or for the book. And in Revelation chapter 12, it depicts the church in this age as being guarded and nourished by God where? In the wilderness. We have not yet arrived, not physically, to the promised land, but are enduring suffering in the wilderness. Revelation 11 also depicts our conformity to Christ. It just does so in a little different way from a different aspect. 
In that chapter, the church is symbolized by the two witnesses who are the two lampstands. And they are persecuted seemingly unto death. The church will be persecuted in this age, even to the point of appearing dead. Of course, we know the church uh, in this age will never die. The gates of hell cannot prevail against her, but the appearance of death is present. But then, Revelation 11 tells us that God's people, after appearing dead, will receive the breath of life from God. What's that? Well, that's their being given new life, their resurrection and glorification. And so there it is. There is the theme of conformity to Christ by suffering first and then glory second, by humiliation unto exaltation. We'll, of course, see those themes more clearly when we get to those chapters and elsewhere throughout the book. But they are certainly major themes of being conformed to the image of Christ by suffering unto glorification. Now, how is this the case? When our passage tells us that we have been made a kingdom of priests to God the Father. This sounds like exaltation. We've been made kings to reign with God. That sounds like exaltation, not like suffering. Well, the short answer to that question is that we are kings and priests first as those who suffer and then later as those who will be glorified and exalted. Remember, we are being conformed to Christ's image. How did Christ mediate as a priest during his wilderness experience? Well, he mediated as a priest through his sacrificial death on the cross. It was through suffering that he was our great high priest while on earth, while in the wilderness. Through his death on the cross, he revealed the way to God as a mediating priest. Now, Christ has also revealed himself as king in his time on earth by conquering. He is a king. He was a king by conquering sin and death. But how? How did he as king conquer sin and death? He did so by laying down his life. So again, we see his kingship is being displayed first by suffering. The death of death occurred in the death of Christ, as John Owen likes to put it. And so you see, he was first a king and a priest in a time of suffering. But having been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, he has become an exalted king and priest. Now we, beloved, in being conformed to his image, are kings and priests to God. But we are so as those who are experiencing suffering. In this life. And then exaltation. In the next. 
And so our reigning with Christ as king is a reign, if you think about it, that is currently veiled to the world. We are already, we've already been made kings. But that reign with Christ as king is veiled to the world. And we've already been making the case that Christ's reign from heaven is presently veiled. We've discussed this in the previous sermons. It's not yet openly seen. And this is in large part what Revelation is unveiling to John. The reign of Christ from heaven. Well, in the same way, our reign, the church's reign alongside of Christ is veiled to this world. Christ came to conquer and reign as king through suffering, and he gained the victory. But that victory is now veiled. Now, his victory was temporarily unveiled. It was openly seen for a short time after his resurrection. He displayed that victory for about 40 days through certain post-resurrection appearances. But when he ascended up to heaven, he sat down on the throne at the right hand of God and his reign since then has been veiled to the world. And so it is with the church who reigns with him. Our reign, the church's reign is not outward. It's not an earthly reign. It is a heavenly and a spiritual reign. I think Paul from Ephesians chapter 2 is is helpful here on this point. Uh, He points out there in Ephesians 2 that when we became believers, that we were raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. We are seated where? On his throne in heaven. And so inwardly, Spiritually, we are raised to sit with Christ on his throne. But we still reside here on earth. And down here, that reign is veiled. It is veiled through our suffering. It is a spiritual reigning. Now, there are certain theologies today and and certain interpretations of Revelation that want the church to reign openly and outwardly in this age. But this undermines the church's conformity to Christ through suffering. And so long as we reside down here, the church is being conformed to Christ through sharing in his sufferings. That phrase is used many, many times throughout the New Testament scriptures. That we share in the sufferings of Christ. That's how we reign and conquer today. We overcome, we conquer or overcome by holding fast to our testimony, even through suffering, even through death. Revelation 12, again, confirms this. In verse 10, we read, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ Have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have 
conquered, that could be translated overcome, and they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. There it is. We are kings reigning with Christ. And we reign and conquer through our suffering, through maintaining our testimony even unto our deaths. Now Christ has also made us priests, and as priests we have immediate access to God in heaven through the sacrificial blood of Christ. And as priests, we have the ministry of revealing to others the way to God in heaven. Christ first revealed it in his own death and resurrection and ascension up to heaven. But we now, as those who have also been made priests, are to reveal that way to eternal life in heaven. I think 1 Peter 2.9 summarizes well the point we've been making here about being priests and kings. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why? He says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, as a royal priesthood, as priest kings, we wage war not by outwardly conquering and ruling over the nations, but by the proclamation of the gospel and of the kingdom of light, which we shall proclaim even unto our deaths. And this leads us to our last main theme that we will look at this morning. Namely, the theme of doxology. In other words, the theme of worship, the theme of praise. That's what doxology is. And in the Old Testament, priests were worshipers. They led others to worship God. The book of Revelation contains several scenes of of worship, the worship of God in heaven. In fact, the very doxology that we find here in chapter 1, 5b and 6, is a shortened version of the doxology that can be found, or a shortened version of the worship that we find in chapters 4 and 5 of the book. In those chapters, John tells us that a doorway into heaven was open to him. In other words, the heavenly reality, the heavenly throne room is being revealed to him. That's the apocalypse. It's the unveiling. The door is open for him to see what is typically hidden and concealed. And he's receiving a revelation, an apocalypse. What is presently veiled to us, the heavenly reality is being unveiled to John. And he has a vision of the worship that occurs day and night unceasingly, in heaven. For example, notice how the heavenly worship in chapter 5 is very similar to the doxological statement that we find here in our passage. In fact, John's just going to shorten what he finds 
and, and writes down in chapter 5 into a shortened version here in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. In chapter 5, the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb who is on the throne. And in verse 9, John writes, chapter 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. There's our freedom. There's the freedom by his blood. He goes on. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then down in verse 13. John in the vision sees not just all of heaven in worship, but all of creation joining in with heaven to worship God. And he writes, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Very similar to the close of the doxology in our passage. Now this, beloved, is the worship that God himself called us to participate in when you heard the call to worship this morning. The call to worship from Exodus 15 was God calling us to join into that heavenly worship that never ceases night and day with the celestial beings. That is the worship that we ourselves join in our corporate assemblies of worship. One of the great emphases of the Reformation was the fact that our worship in the new covenant is heavenly worship and not earthly worship. The worship in the old covenant was earthly. It was typological of our heavenly worship. But it was earthly and rudimentary because it was the pattern of what is taking place in heaven. But new covenant worship is heavenly and spiritual. That is what Christ has accomplished for us. You see, the old covenant saints gathered at an earthly mountain or later at an earthly tabernacle and even later on at an earthly temple. For their worship. But where does the author of Hebrews tell us we worship today? He says that we in the new covenant have come to Mount Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem. Not the earthly city Jerusalem where Mount Zion was. But the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Mount Zion. We worship in the heavenly tabernacle or the heavenly temple. And so realizing this, the reformers largely rejected the elaborate and elemental worship of the Roman Catholic Church. And simplified their worship services. And simplified the buildings where they worshipped. Since new covenant worship is to take place in heaven and not on earth. We join the worship that is in heaven. Now, we don't see that with our eyes because it's veiled to us. 
But that is what John is telling us, that that's where we join to worship with the heavenly celestial beings in heaven. And so our worship should be modeled after the worship that is taking place in heaven. The apocalypse of John, therefore, should shape our worship of God. But just as important as revealing how we should worship, the apocalypse of John also speaks to the motivation, I think, of our worship. It's also indicating to us that having a revelation of who God is and what he is doing should drive us to doxology. It should drive us to worship and praise him. As we look at John's doxology here in chapter 1, 5 and 6, we notice that it comes directly after the benediction that he gave. The blessing that he gave from God to his people, which we looked at last week. And so, when John thinks about the grace and the peace that comes from the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when he thinks about who God is and all that he has done and all that he will do in the future, John is moved to worship God. He's moved to praise God. That is what we're doing here this morning. We are here, and I hope that throughout the week you look forward to this day to worship God, to join in the unceasing worship of God in heaven, where celestial beings are constantly praising our God in Christ who sits upon the throne, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation is calling us to worship the triune God who is sovereign over all the affairs of this world and who has inaugurated his kingdom in victory and will bring his kingdom to its consummate and glorious end. And so as we move through this series, the appropriate response from us should be to worship, to praise our triune God. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we pray that you would make us to be a people who recognize our kingship, who recognize our priesthood, and who would long to serve in these roles, to serve the, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, and to worship and to point to others the way to heaven. In our own priesthood. And so we pray, Lord, that you would conform us more and more to that image. And Lord, help us to accept that that conformity comes through suffering first. We do long, O Lord, for exaltation to be raised and glorified just as Christ himself was raised and glorified at his resurrection. But Lord, help us not to overlook 
that within your beautiful plan, that we first must be conformed through suffering. Let us not be those who think of ourselves too highly and think that we should not receive suffering. For even our Savior and Lord went through suffering. And we are certainly not higher than He. So Lord, we pray that as we suffer in many ways, tempted and have many trials thrown at us, we pray that we would see these as opportunities to bear testimony to Christ in all that we do. We thank you for our salvation in him and his shed blood as our true Passover lamb. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.